Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 22nd of May, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, White Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to have David Scott bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border and uh, Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. And we're very pleased to have a guest with us today. Well, we're going to kick straight off with a report on uh, Ukraine because big events over the weekend because the city of Bakhmud fell. And uh, this is actually a report here from uh, CNN. Uh, Russia's Wagner Group claims to have captured Bakhmut, but Ukraine says it still controls a part of it. Now, of course, that's not a definitive headline. And as we're going to see, the Western press very reluctant to talk about what's actually been happening. And we've labelled, uh, we put a subheader in this slide to say panic in the West as the Bakhmut stronghold falls to the Russians. Now, I haven't included any um, video clip of what was happening in the city because I have to say over the last few days, it was just it was just too, uh, too unpleasant really to show. Uh, but it was very clear from the Russian attacks on the main citadel, the, the stronghold area of the city, that they were not short of ammunition. They were shelling, they were using uh, very large glide bombs, and they were also uh, using their thermite weapons. So the city at one stage looked like some of the films out of Dresden. We'll leave it, uh, we'll leave it there. Um, but of course, um, some elements of the press knew full well what was coming, and we've got CNB here reporting uh, Ukraine war live updates. Ukraine refuses to accept the loss of Bakhmud. Wagner's mercenary boss downplays army's role in capture. That headline was actually from the 17th of May. So what we do know is that Western uh, press and media knew full well what was coming. Uh, but if we did a little search over the weekend, it all got very woolly. So this was a screenshot that I took on Saturday at uh, a few minutes past five o'clock in the afternoon UK time. And um, well, if you tried to see what was actually happening in Bakhmud, you were just directed back to old information and much uh, conjecture over uh, what was actually happening. They certainly weren't reporting that uh, Bakhmud had fallen. Uh, but in social media, it was a completely different story. And if we just play this as a, a clip in the background, there were reports after reports with video and uh, photographs showing the Russians claiming the territory. Uh, obviously, there's no fighting going on. There's no risk of snipers because these soldiers are moving around freely in the battle areas. And the geolocation carried out by the uh, um, uh, by the online analysts clearly showed that the Russians had indeed captured the whole city, albeit with some checks going on to ensure that buildings were clear. So if we have a look at how the reports uh, came through on uh, the internet, uh, Weeb Union I've used before, but I've also pointed out that there are many good channels who've been reporting. Um, so the blue sectors, uh, top right of your screen, shows uh, those sectors as the Russians advance through the city. But at this point, Bakhmut had fallen 
And uh, he had an embedded image, not the one I've included. His was a little bit blurred on screen, but more images of uh, Russian soldiers waving flags and uh, claiming that the city had fallen, which indeed it had. But uh, Mike Zelensky, not so uh, happy with life. Uh, well, no. On Friday, we reported that Zelensky would be appearing at the G7 by video link. And indeed, he did on Friday on the first day. But uh, the reason for that was because he was also uh, begging for weaponry from uh, the Arab uh, com uh, conference that uh, Vanessa was talking about on Friday. He then subsequently flew uh, to Japan for the G7, uh, where he met, uh, amongst other people, uh, Joe Biden. And, uh, well, he was asked by, the by a journalist uh, what the status of Bakhmut was. Let's just have a listen. Mr. President, is Bakhmut still in Ukraine's hands? The Russians say they've taken Bakhmut. I think no, but you have to, to understand that there is nothing. They destroyed everything, there are no buildings. It's a pity, it's tragedy, but for, for today, Bakhmut is only in our hearts. There is nothing on this place. So according to Mr. Zelensky, there was nothing. It's in our hearts. Otherwise, nothing else existed except all the photographs uh, which were being circulated worldwide showed very clearly Russians had taken Bakhmut. David, just quickly, what's, what's your take on the statement and the body language by Zelensky? I, I think he was, he was nonplussed. He didn't know what to say and he knew full well the city had fallen. Well, I'm sure he knew full well it had fallen. Um, the last week to 10 days, um, the uh, Ukrainian side has been putting out a lot of information about some small-scale counterattacks around the flanks of, of Bakhmud, which they were saying was a, the start of a, of a giant encirclement. Um, and they were talking up um, uh, to, to a considerable degree. So this is obviously not going, going at all to script. And uh, I think you can see that in his body language there today. OK, thank you for that. Uh, well, of course, the BBC was in a, a major quandary. So uh, the front page article uh, up until 12.30 today was this one. Bachmann not occupied by Russia, says defiant Zelensky. And uh, we have challenged the BBC about their reporting, but we haven't had a reply to our email. We'll keep you posted in that. But let's uh, just bring in a little bit of um, the text here. Um, there'd earlier been some confusion about the state of Bakhmut after Mr. Zelensky said, today, Bakhmut is only in our hearts. And of course, that was the film clip that we've just shown to the audience. So everybody, including the BBC, is confused, apart from social and international media, uh, which was reporting accurately. But this is the nonsense that's coming out of the BBC. Quote, a top Ukrainian general later said Kiev's forces were making advances on the outskirts of Bakhmud and were getting closer to a tactical encirclement of the city. Now, this is uh, from, from another website. I've just used it as a simple example of what was going on. But we can see in the dull red cover, the Russian controlled territory, 
after the fall of Bakhmut, most of the Ukrainian forces are roughly in the blue circle. And what is clearly not happening is any encirclement of Bakhmut by the Ukrainians. So the BBC confused. It doesn't know what's happening. It can't report properly. Um, basically, the BBC appears to be no longer fit for purpose. Here's the reality. Here's the Russian troops with the Bakhmut sign. Uh, the city has fallen. Artyomovs rises. That is the Russian traditional name for this city. So we presume that that will now change. Uh, silence from the BBC. We'd like to thank Military Summary Channel for this data, but I know it's uh, been collected from a number of sources. So Bakhmud was captured on the 21st of May. That was the official announcement. Uh, the fighting lasted 224 days. Um, 23,000 Ukrainians killed as a minimum, in my opinion, for the defence of this city. Their total casualties, including those deaths, 39,000. Um, now, interestingly, the website um, valued the vehicle losses at $7.8 billion. Uh, the whole city strewn with wrecked Western armour. And of course, that is straight out of the taxpayer's pocket. Uh, 2,700 Ukrainian drones destroyed and 23 Ukrainian aircraft. Now, I'm just going to put a caveat on this, that, of course, this is indicative data. Uh, these are estimates, but uh, these appear to be much better estimates than anything coming out of the BBC. So let's now switch our attention to problems with weapons that uh, the UK in particular has put into Ukraine, because, of course, uh, we've put in a lot of depleted uranium ammunition for the Challenger tanks that have gone in. And uh, a few days ago, we showed on screen this massive explosion as the Russians targeted um, a ammunition dump. This is clearly hundreds, maybe 1,000 tonnes of ammunition exploding. Uh, but what was to emerge was the fact that there were suggestions that this actually had been a, a very targeted Russian strike on the ammunition dumps that included the depleted uh, uranium. Now, interestingly enough, over recent days, Russia, this was the 19th of May, put out this report. Russian watchdog addresses radioactive cloud reports. And in the article, uh, which is from Russia today, it says that radiation levels in Russia are normal, uh, but a radioactive cloud, I'm going to say, is allegedly heading for the West. And this has come about uh, because um, many think that depleted uranium rounds were destroyed in that explosion. Now, I'm very pleased to say that uh, we've got some very well-qualified individuals who've started to alert the Western world about the possibility um, of fallout from depleted uranium weapons destroyed in this explosion. And uh, I'm delighted to welcome on to the UK column, Dr. Deep T. Bisht, who's going to take us through some of her findings. Um, before I welcome her on screen, we'll just uh, show you uh, this other slide, which is um, uh, from her unit, which is uh, warning about these radiation surges. And we'll also just have a look at this little clip, uh, which is from um, Dr. Bish herself, talking about uh, why there is a possible problem. So let's just play this clip. Hello. On behalf of UNIT, I would like to issue an alert 
to the residents of Ukraine, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary and East Germany that a significant amount of radiation has been detected by radiation monitors in these areas. Upon preliminary investigations, a significant surge in gamma ray dosage has been timed with the declared targeting of sites that were storing the Western supplied ammunition in Ukraine. At least three spikes in radiations were identified in the last two weeks through data which was evaluated by UNIT. It is therefore we, it is therefore our responsibility to issue a radiation warning to the European residents, especially in areas contaminous to Ukraine. Well, there we are, very succinct little video setting out uh, what the problem is. So let's uh, welcome Dr. Bish with the UK column today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Okay. Now, the first thing I want to say is, is that uh, a few nights ago, you were kind enough to, uh, to uh, invite me into a Zoom meeting where you had several very highly qualified professionals, both people qualified at professor level uh, to do with radiation, uh, fallout problems, but also security and military uh, experts. And that team uh, were clearly very, very concerned about what has what has happened. Are, are you able to just tell us a little bit about UNIT itself and, and what this group of people is trying to achieve? Yes, thank you, Brian. Um, UNIT is essentially a, an exclusive defence and intelligence organisation. Very briefly, uh, we are looking out for the people because the normal three and four-lettered agencies are not able to do their job. So uh, three years ago, I, I I went around and recruited, not recruited is not the right word, but essentially, um, you know, um, um, had a coalition of uh, basically highly qualified people within the military and uh, from around the world and whose sole concern is essentially what the world has come to at present with regards to what happened with COVID and now with Russia and Ukraine. So basically the West is not looking out for the interests of its own people. And that is where our concern, um, you know, begins essentially. Yeah. Uh Okay, thank you very much for that. Well, if we pop the first slide on screen, and these are your slides, so thank you very much for providing these for the news today. Uh, but this one is Western, am uh, sorry, West Western ammunition depot hits and re related radiation spikes. Um, I, I've added the red arrows to show um, some of the points at which the Russians were targeting um, uh, Ukrainian infrastructure, clearly including ammunition depots. And then on the left of screen, we've got a number of little uh, green diamonds indicated by the uh, green arrow. And these are some of the monitoring stations. So um, over to you. Tell us a bit more about what you put together on this slide and why. Thank you, Brian. Um, so yes, you're right, on the right side. So basically we are monitoring the situation in regards to public health in any matter. So it could be, uh, you know, nuclear in this in this instance. So we are monitoring the radiation levels that are being um, reported at various um, sites essentially. And in May, so the slide is actually 
a summary of May until now. So you've got the reported uh, in stars, in red stars, you've got the reported uh, ammunition depot hits by the Ru Russian Federation. And you're right on the left side of the slide, you've got uh, the sensors. So these are monitoring daily. So every hour we've got reading essentially. And these are uh, from the European monitoring system. So uh, the idea was is essentially to identify any surge in gamma radiation. So these are gamma ray sensors, and they pick up any spikes in the gamma rays, which is, which stands out uh, from the background. So that's what it is. Yes. So if you've got a spike in gamma rays, then you've got some sort of a surge in radioactive material circulating in the atmosphere. Okay, Dr. Bish, thank you. Thank you for that. And if I remember correctly, these monitoring stations in uh, Eastern Europe um, are EU monitoring stations which were established after the Ch Chernobyl disaster. Is that correct? Yes, you're right, Brian. So the, they were they were installed. There's a very dense network, especially in France uh, and Germany. Um, there, Poland is well covered, Hungary too. Um, quite sparse in, in some of the countries, but most of the European countries would have that. And yes, you're right, it was in the wake of Chernobyl disaster. Okay, thank you for that. And the other thing, which I'm not going to bring up on screen, but I think is important for our viewers and listeners to understand is, of course, if you look at the wind flow patterns over Ukraine, the prevailing wind is, uh, is a southeasterly wind, so it's moving up to the northwest. Uh, but the interesting thing is that when that airflow moves over Poland, it then uh, deviates down to the south. So it curls down over Hungary and towards Bosnia-Herzegovina. So it's largely the eastern sector of of what we call Western Europe, uh, but down into Hungary and uh, those those areas. And uh, you have um, then been able to look at some of the detailed data, just a selection here, but take us through what these slides are, sh uh, are showing us. So yes, and thank you for that. So this one is Kamenika. And um, so what you're seeing on the x-axis are the dates. So, um, so you, what, and then you've got wiggly graphs. On the y-axis, you've got the dose rates of the gamma rays. So how we read it, I mean, in, in very simplistic terms, um, is essentially there's a background radiation, which is always there, and which is actually caused by the, uh, by the ge geology, with, uh, with, with soil, with rocks, and, but also with civilian structures, with storms, and so on and so forth. Um, however, in this slide, you see that there are distinct two spikes. And, um, and these actually correlate with the timing of the explosions that were, that were actually recorded um, in terms of uh, Kumilinitsky, sorry for the pronunciation, but that's the 13th of May expl explosion, but also with other explosions that were declared um, by the Russian Federation. So you've got a, a distinct peak, I uh, can't read the dates on this one, but I think that's the 15th, and then you've got um, the got the 18th or 17th. Um, so you've got those two peaks, and that means there is a surge of radioactive material swirling around in the atmosphere. And um, and that is clearly quite dangerous for okay. the health of the people. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Well, let's bring the other two up on screen. So this this is the next one. And we've got a very, we've got a very similar peak on the uh, 18th and back on between uh, on the 15th. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, yes, indeed. I mean, so this pattern, Brian, is consistent all over Poland. So you've got, 
you've got a distinct peak on the 17th and then um, then before that you've got it on the 15th and even before that there are some peaks that are uh, that are on the 6th so so we are seeing these um consistent surges all over a very vast geographic area which is Poland um Hungary and um, and Slovakia and also the eastern borders of Germany so this is clearly a regional signal it is not something that um, that can be explained any by anything else other than the timing of the ammunition depots being hit okay yeah. thank you for that we'll pop the last one up on screen so um you you took i think it was over 30 sampling sites altogether in your analysis so we're only giving the audience a, a brief bit here um but this was the other one um any any comments on this one Yes, so you see that now in this one, actually, you've got very, uh, Radom uh, didn't record the previous week was not very clear, but, and here you can see the data quality is not that great, yet the peaks do stand out and, um, and you can't debate it. I mean, there's literally, it's as clear as day, daylight, essentially, that there has been something going on um, around those dates. Okay, thank you for that. Something else I remember is uh, one of the qualified professors said until uh, actual dust debris samples can be obtained, it's still difficult to actually pin it down to the depleted uranium. However, the, uh, the risk of these sampling sites uh, speaks for itself. Um, you made some conclusions. I don't know whether you're able to uh, take us through these on screen. If not, I'll help you out and read, read, read it for you. No, thank, thank you, Brian. Um, ju just to comment on what you said earlier, when we had the meeting, I hadn't done the, a full technical you know, review. Now that whole review is finished and we can conclusively state that um, whether it was depleted uranium or not, we don't know, but there was a significant amount uh, of uranium present, which is radioactive, essentially. So we're looking at, uh, if we take the conclu conclusion slide, there are three peaks we observe. So we observed the first peak around the 6th of May, and that would be, um, you know, that would be a result of an undeclared uh, hit, which we do not know which one it is, essentially. And then we see two distinct peaks on the 15th um, and 15, 16, that's one cluster. And then we see it on 17th and 18th. Uh, whether the 17th and 18th are two separate incidences or not, we cannot say. However, there are three distinct peaks in, within the month of May. And, uh, and what it means uh, for, con uh, for public people who do not understand, you know, all the science behind it, but it suffice to say that there is so much uh, material that has been injected in the atmosphere in a very short period of time that it is of great concern for, for, for us. And we would like to issue, you know, again, reiterate the warning that guys, you know, uh, th this is a public health emergency, essentially. Okay, thank you for that. Well, you had a final uh, comment here, uh, conclusion. Uh, I'll read it very quickly. In summary, UNIT concludes that the cumulative amount of radioactive material which has been released into the atmosphere, atmosphere as a result of military strikes on Western supplied radioactive material enriched ammunition is a direct threat to the health of the public in Ukraine, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia and East Germany. Um, and of course, uh, what you are really asking for is proper investigation by the pertinent authorities. Yes, certainly. And, and not only that, Brian, I think there has to be, uh, you know, uh, 
people have to be responsible essentially and governments providing and and um provoking uh such sort of strikes it, it's criminal beyond any description essentially yes. so there is no regard to 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 public health there's no regard to environment not only for you know this is a long-standing problem so so if you understand what's been done we do not know uh, in at least not in our lifetimes essentially that the effects wouldn't wane not off in our lifetimes but further generations down so this is almost a permanent damage we're doing not only to human life but to crops so you know these areas are the bread baskets for 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 Europe so we are actually polluting the our own bread basket so it, it is it's quite serious Okay, Dr. Bish, thank you very, very much for taking us through that. You've been kind enough to say you'll join us for UK Column Extra after the news, and we can discuss some of this in a bit more detail. And we're looking at uh, putting up a, a UK Column um, Symposia on the subject in due course. So thank you for that segment. Okay, David, uh, let's move to the BBC then. And uh, well, they have launched a new brand today. Mike's wrong with the existing brand. Uh, they've relaunched their new service, and uh, well, this time it's going to be great. Uh, here's Mariana Spring to tell us all about it. We're a team of investigative journalists here at the BBC. Uh, we are also a new brand, and we are a physical location um, above the newsroom in London. Um, and the point of the team, as you said, is to verify video, to fact check, to counter disinformation, um, and to analyse really complex stories so we can get to the truth of what's going on. Why does this matter? Well, mistruths can cause really serious harm to society and to the people in them. And so we want to show you our workings and really help you understand how we get to the bottom of what's happening. And I'm going to give you a bit of a flavour of the kind of work that the team are doing. Uh, so we're able to look at maps to geolocate um, specific uh, situations, stuff that's going on. Um, this is just a map of central London, where we are now. And this is New Broadcasting House, where I'm speaking to you from. Um, and it's not so important perhaps for the centre of London, but it is when we're analysing war zones or what's happening in hard to reach places. And there's a story on the BBC website today. It's looking at Russian fortifications um, on the front lines in Ukraine. Uh, and you can read more about it there. Um, and there are other ways that we also are able to interrogate what's going on, including on social media. Um, I have some undercover accounts that I've set up for the BBC's Americas podcast. And we use these kinds of undercover accounts. And um, these are the characters that the accounts uh, are, uh, belong to, um, uh, to be able to really understand polarization online and how um, what's happening on our social media feeds and what we're being recommended and pushed to us can affect all of us. Um, and they don't offer us a totally um, exhaustive insight into what's going on, but they can help us understand just how social media works. Um, and then there's also investigating uh, other mistruths and the real world harm they can cause. Um, at the moment, I'm investigating the UK's conspiracy theory movement. I'm trying to understand more about how it's evolved and intensified since uh, the pandemic here in the UK. I'm looking at the alternative media that finds itself at the heart of this movement and a conspiracy theory newspaper that's a part of that as well. I'm looking at the way that alternative media is funded. I'm looking at its impact on local communities. I'm looking at its connections with far-right figures and also its foreign links. Um, that's for a podcast series that will be coming out in June. It's called Mariana in Conspiracy Land uh, and it will be available on BBC Sounds Radio 4 asking that question, could January the 6th or a German coup attempt like we saw um, there ever happen here. Wow. Wow, wasn't that fantastic? So she's going to fact check things. They're going to analyse 
the news. I mean, who, who ever thought of this? Now, a couple of things. Um, I, we'll get to later why they might have zoomed in on Broadcasting House, because that is in the news, although Mariana wasn't telling us why. Um, serious harm from mistruths. That would be like the COVID-19 pandemic, right? That would be everything the government did, everything the authorities said, and of course the BBC shilled for them every single minute and questioned none of it. So she's got some questions to answer about that. Um, I thought the sock puppet account thing was quite interesting because this, just understand what she's doing there. She's going on social media pretending to be someone, someone else. So she's lying to people. She's deceiving people. In she's trolling to, people. Yes, in, in order to get at the truth, allegedly. Uh, I wonder if the newspaper they're going for is the light. I suspect it might be. Um, and, uh, well, if she would like to come and talk to us about our foreign links, far-right links and funding, we would be delighted to do that. Of course, we would have some questions for Mariana as well. Um, I would just like to thank um, a Twitter account called Reject the Great Reset for the following uh, tweet. This was rather beautiful. This is in response to Mariana. And uh, just to remind everyone that this is a person who's calling you a conspiracy theorist. Now, on a similar kind of um, comical note, Mariana did tweet out um, uh, about a month ago, back in April, end of April, um, uh, about <laughs> her day. She's a typical day as the BBC's disinformation and social media correspondent, venturing down the rabbit hole quite literally. Right, and as you see, you see her making the shot that she showed you there on that video today, um, with um, the, you know, a fake rabbit hole. Now, I, I thought this was quite funny. I thought this was genuinely hilarious. So I tweeted at her and uh, asked her, "Do you think the irony is lost on Mariana Spring that she's generating a fake picture using a fake rabbit hole whilst claiming to be venturing down the rabbit hole quite literally?" I thought that was funny. Um, Mariana doesn't have a sense of humour, however, uh, so she blocked me on Twitter, which is very sad. Um, and there we go. So don't, don't, um, don't expect Mariana to see the funny side. That's not going to happen. On a little more serious note, we've got media shots here uh, covering what the basic story is. So BBC News launches BBC Verify to improve transparency and trust. So first question, gentlemen. Is that an admission that they have a problem with trust? Yes. Don't need to say any more than that. There's one it's very easy that. to answer, answer that question, David. They have a huge problem and they know it and it's getting worse because the BBC brand is now a damaged brand. And it's about to be more damaged, but keep going. So anyway, yeah, so the, the, the fact that they're having to rebrand themselves is really fascinating. So they've launched this BBC Verify, a new brand. So BBC News as a brand is dead or is so tainted that they need to replace it. Um, and this is to address the growing threat of disinformation and build trust. So they're admitting, yeah, they have a problem with that. And transparency, right? Showing how BBC journalists know the information they're reporting. Now, it gets funnier, and it is quite funny. So BBC Verify, a new initiative uh, consisting of a team of investigative journalists a brand and also a physical area in the newsroom. Okay, great stuff. They then say, uh, BBC News CEO Deborah Turnus said, quote, I've always wanted to pull back the curtain on our journalism to show audiences how, incredible, how, how the incredible hard work going on behind the scenes at BBC News 
to check and verify the information we share with our audiences. Um, now, if you are the BBC, I have to say, pulling back the curtain is a terrible metaphor, right? Anything that suggests that you might be, shall we say, the great and powerful Oz, and in fact, you're speaking loudly to the entire world, but behind the curtain, you are a weak and laughable organization. That's not the way to go. I thought that was fascinating that she should opt for pulling back the curtain. Because, well, yeah. Um, so they said news consumers, that would be people. This is, again, how to think about people. It's very strange. News consumers have told us that the more they know about the work our journalists do, the more they will know they can trust our journalism. <laughs> so, and tautologies are tautological. Um, and, and on the go, they say it's, it's going to be a highly specialised team. It's going to be forensic and open source analysis. And um, there's going to be lots of information coming out all across their, their network. She said, I'm delighted to be at the helm of BBC Verify, helping to set the standard in transparent and verified journalism people can trust. Again, mentioning trust again. They're clearly very vulnerable on the subject of trust. Um, so uh, Mariana Spring mentioned it. Uh, so what was the first story that BBC Verify decided to put up? Uh, let's have a look at it. Uh, the title is Ukraine War Satellite Images Reveal Russian Defences Before a Major Assault. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but I'm not aware that the BBC has done any kind of serious analysis of Ukrainian defences at any point during this time. So they're, they're focusing on one side of the argument here. It's com completely biased. This, this is the BBC um, now acting as an agent of the Ukrainian military. The BBC is here to help break down Russian defences and help prosecute this war. So these are the types of images that they're showing on this. They're not all satellite images. They have uh, an image, a couple of images uh, from ground level, uh, including one from RAI, RAI Novosti. So they're taking open source uh, information as well as, uh, as satellite images that they've taken from a, a satellite organization. So which satellite organization are we talking about? Well, it's a, a number of them, but one of them uh, is this one, Planet Labs. Uh, so I just thought we would very briefly have a look at uh, Planet here uh, because, sorry, if we just go back one, they're all about monitoring, detecting and informing. Mm. So they improve the speed, accuracy and safety of your mission, whoever you happen to be, with a near real-time satellite imagery, uh, change detection alerts and high resolution tasking. Uh, and they're very keen to let everybody know that they've been focusing on the Russia-Ukraine war. So Planet Satellite Imagery has provided the unprecedented, sorry, provided unprecedented transparency into the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, and there's a whole section here on the type of imagery that they're providing. They're not being very specific on who they're providing it to, but the implications are that it's certainly uh, not limited to uh, the media at all. Or we can say with confidence, this is military industrial complex or it's military light. Yes. Uh, so uh, they pretend to be squeaky clean, but actually what they're doing clearly is helping prosecute a war. Um, but sticking with the BBC, uh, obviously, Mariana, uh, as, as David said, uh, decided to present the top broadcasting house at, at the beginning of her report. But over the weekend, uh, well, something was going on once again with the uh, statue on the outside of Broadcasting House there. Uh, and uh, well, that's the, of course, Alec, Eric Gill's statue. Now, so the person wearing the 
Uh, Spider-Man mask has been arrested after allegedly hitting a controversial statue. These are their words. Hitting a controversial statue outside BBC's HQ in London with a hammer. The police were called at 4.15 in the morning on Saturday to reports that a man had climbed the scaffolding outside Broadcasting House and was damaging Eric Gill's Prospero and Ariel statue. Uh, it's the second time uh, the 1930s work has been targeted, they said. Uh, they went on to say that the man was brought down from the scaffold shortly after 6 p.m., so he was up there for the whole day. Uh, the Metropolitan Police, they say, said that he had been arrested on suspicion of criminal damage and going equipped, uh, and that he would be taken into police custody. It comes after a protester took the hammer, a hammer to the statue in January last year. Repair work from the damage done during that incident is continuing. So that was their position on this. Um, on Saturday uh, morning uh, on the Today programme, uh, Kitty Razzle, who is the uh, culture editor, was being interviewed about this. I thought we'd just take a little bit of clips, uh, a little bit of, uh, of what she said and, uh, and consider actually what she said. Let's listen to the first little clip here. As many people listening will know, Eric Gill, uh, who was an incredibly successful and renowned sculptor and artist in recent times, ever since uh, an auto a biography was written in the late 80s, it emerged from his private diaries that he had, I mean, a horrifically deviant and horrible past that, according to his diaries, he'd sexually abused his daughters, he'd had an incestuous relationship with his sister and had even uh, abused the family dog. This all came out in a biography uh, written, as I said, in by Fiona McCarthy in, in, in 1989 and at that point, you know, obviously completely horrific, uh, a completely horrific story. But, it, you know, it, it, those debates, which aren't just about Eric Gill, about whether you can judge an artist or anybody based on their actual, you know, lives or whether their art stands alone. You know, the BBC has found itself caught up in. So the question is, does someone's art stand alone? And David, I've got a question for you here, because here's a piece of art. Now, it may not be a very good piece of art, but it's still a piece of art. Uh, many people will recognize the piece of art. And of course, if we zoom in on the, uh, on the uh, signature at the bottom, uh, it, the name is A. Hitler. And my question to you, David, is if the BBC was hanging this piece of art in the foyer of Broadcasting House, would they or would they not expect that people would draw some kind of conclusion about that? Uh, and so how can they take a position on a piece of artwork produced by a pretty horrendous pedophile and incestuous and, and in fact, deviant. deviant yes. Uh, and, and, but they perhaps would not be so willing to hang that particular piece of art uh, in their premises. Yeah, you make a good point, Mike. Where are the standards here? I, I, I don't understand it because the BBC was basically saying there, well, either artists or everybody, they were a bit vague as to which, cannot be judged based on their lives. Well, that's how we are judged, right? That's how the courts judge us. That's how other people judge us. Uh, and ultimately, that is how we'll be judged. So the idea that, oh, well, you know, he... He's 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 made a, a a sculpt a sculpture and that's that's got to be entirely separated from the man who made it seems illogical. Um, and then you got to the sculpture itself, and this and the sculpture itself is highly problematic, particularly given that background. And obviously, this is the second time it's been it's been attacked. There is a considerable public feeling that this is entirely inappropriate for the national broadcaster to have this symbol 
essentially of paedophilia standing outside their headquarters. Um, at what point do the BBC start thinking, hmm, maybe everyone else has a point and it's us that's wrong? Well, David, maybe you're being a bit unkind to the BBC because the lady did say that, unfortunately, they, they were caught up in it. They'd had no idea of any of this background. They're supposed to be lead investigative journalists with a budget of billions, but they just didn't know. Uh, they didn't know about Jimmy Savile either. It's, it's all an unfortunate mistake. We have a second short clip here. Let's have a listen to this. Clearly, Gil, you know, he is one of the, you know, an artist who has a sort of influence across the country, not just at the BBC. You know, his sculptors are housed in various, you know, major institutions. And also, let's face it, Gil Sands, uh, people might have heard of that if they know about typefaces, you know, is one of the most widely used British typefaces. So his, his legacy is everywhere. He is pervasive. So, David, he, he has a great legacy and we should, we should celebrate that legacy. Well, maybe we should ask the children he abused about his legacy. How are they doing? These are good questions, uh, or the dog, in fact. So uh, anyway, we're going to leave it there. But I think, uh, you know, the BBC has some fairly major questions to answer. And uh, they I don't think they're in a position to justify. Uh, it's hard to justify the position that they're taking anyway uh, with respect to the statue. They made a very good attempt at trying to justify it. But uh, I think that... Uh, that particular statue is going to continue to attract um, similar activities. Yes. Attention. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does, and you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, Mariana, you'd be very welcome to go there yourself uh, if you would like to understand how we are funded uh, and uh, you, you might like to join. Um, so anyway, uh, if you'd like to do that, I'd be very welcome. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share material that you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, I'd like to just remind everybody that on Friday evening, uh, we hosted an expose of the World Health Organization uh, featuring uh, Wolfgang Wuldarg, uh, David Bell, Sylvia Berendt, uh, Philip Cruiser, uh, Jim Drogowski, and Meryl Nass. Uh, the videos are online at the moment, uh, and uh, we will have more of those. Uh, uh, being featured on the front page in the next couple of days. Uh, but uh, do have a, have a look on the UK Column website uh, for those videos if you'd like to watch uh, more. Excellent. Uh, okay, David, uh, let's uh, come on to Fernethy then. Yes, yeah, so we've got the Courier reporting here. Uh, there's been a major movement forward in the Fernethy case. So the, uh, the Courier reports an exclusive woman 75 in court on 16 cruelty charges. Um, amid Fonetti's school investigation. Okay, so this is, this is very significant. Um, uh, the, the report continues. A woman has been charged with cruelty in connection with an investigation into alleged child abuse at council-run residential school Fonetti. Uh, unfortunately, the courier gets some of this report wrong. They say hundreds of children attended Fonetti House near Kirimuyo Nangas between 1916 and 1993. Um, that's tens of thousands that should read, and that's a very significant error because the scale of this is enormous. Uh, they, they continue with the, the report. Patricia Baxter, now at the time she committed these offences, uh, she, she wasn't married and her maiden name was Robertson. Uh, she appeared at Forfra Sheriff Court in private on 11th May to face multiple allegations of cruel and unnatural treatment according to court records. 75-year-old 
um, whose uh, address is listed uh, as being in Essex in southern England, faces 16 charges under common law. Um, she um, did not enter a plea and has been released on bail. Um, and the, the report went on to then explain that um, police investigations are going to continue um, and then a decision will be made whether to bring forward um, an indictment um, and that would mean a jury trial. Um, and that whole process might take up to a year uh, to work its way through. So um, this is just the start of the process, but it's very heartening for everyone concerned and most of all, of course, for the Fernetti girls who, who suffered at that institution uh, that we see some progress um, bringing at least one of the perpetrators um, to answer charges. Uh, David, has the BBC covered this alleged, story? Sorry, I should say alleged perpetrators. Beg your pardon, alleged perpetrators. Has the BBC covered this story? Um, I don't believe they have, uh, Mike, no. Mm, okay, just wondering. Uh, okay, let's move on then uh, from STV here. Uh, yes, yeah, so STV, this is a, a, a story we very briefly covered at the time when the arrest was made. Um, this is now uh, gone to court and uh, uh, the person concerned has, has pled guilty, um, admitted to charges. So the, the headline here is, man abducted and sexually assaulted a schoolgirl whilst dressed as a woman. Andrew Miller uh, appeared in Edinburgh High Court on Thursday. Now, uh, he admitted to abducting an 11-year-old girl whilst dressed uh, as a woman before sexually assaulting her at, a, at his home in the borders. Um, and he pled guilty. Um, he also admitted to possessing indecent photographs of children uh, and intentionally causing a child under 13 to look at a sexual image. Uh, he'd taken the girl to his home, subjected, to a series, subjected her to a series of sexual assaults over a course of 27 hours. He kept her in a bedroom and wouldn't let her leave. Um, and basically the child essentially escaped, phone 999 from inside the house and organised her own rescue um, in what must have been an absolutely horrific uh, uh, experience. Um, the, the report continues, Miller can find a girl to his bedroom, uh, repeatedly sexually assaulted her. She asked him to be allowed to go home. He told her that he would return in the following morning. The victim remained confined to the bedroom um, for the majority of the time. On the second night, when the accused had fallen asleep, uh, the child um, uh, basically snuck out and attempted to escape, found the door was locked, but managed to find a phone and phone 999. Um, the uh, accused, the guilty uh, person, uh, said that he gave her a lift as a motherly thing, uh, addressing him, uh, and Judge Lord uh, Arthurson said, your actions represent abhorrent crimes the most utmost depravity and criminality. Your actions in this case are the realisation of every parent's worst nightmare. He's remanded in custody and will appear for sentencing in August. Now, um, this has been described as a man dressed up as a woman. And the reason it's been described as that is that the, the person who's now admitted to the crimes, uh, the offender, chose to be, to be tried under his male name and male identity if he'd chosen to be tried under a female name and female identity, he would have been a trans woman because that's how the law in Scotland is currently working. Um, now, this is obviously throwing up further light and further, further highlights into the, the whole debate over 
over self-ID and gender identity. We've got here a clip from Shona Robertson speaking in Parliament some time ago, assuring everyone that there would never be a case where a male offender would dress up as a woman in order to further his offensive, his, his offending behaviour. Uh, they didn't need to do this, and male offenders wouldn't do this. So here's Shona. There is no evidence that predatory and abusive men have ever had to pretend to be anything else to carry out abusive and predatory behaviour. So, the, so there we go. That's uh, Deputy First Minister Shona Robertson, Deputy First Minister now, she wasn't at that point, um, stating that there, there is no evidence that, um, that a predatory man would ever dress up as a woman, pretend to be a woman to uh, further the, um, the offending behaviour. This has been now called into question by this case. So she's been questioned by a journalist. We now have some journalists in Scotland have kind of been rediscovered, I think. Um, and uh, this is what she had to say about the situation now. Uh, Ms Robson, um, do you still stand by what you said in Parliament? There's no evidence predatory men have ever had to, ca to pretend to be anything else to carry out abusive behaviour. We've just had the case today of Andrew Miller. Do you still stand by what you said last year? Well, the vast majority of trans people are just wanting to get on with their lives. Of course, what we're talking about here are people who have committed very serious crimes. Now, I wouldn't want to talk about the, the case because it's still ongoing, but clearly anyone... He's admitted the offences. Well, anyone who has committed an offence is an offender and should be treated as such. But we should not, because we wouldn't do this with any other community, take those cases of offenders and and imply that somehow that is an issue for the rest of the trans community. No, you said there is no is evidence predatory men have ever had to pretend to be anything else to carry out abusive behaviour. Well, and then we've got the case of Andrew well, Miller. Well, clearly this is a predatory man who has carried out offending behaviour and should be treated as such. But what I'm saying He's is... He's identifying as a woman when he lured the girl into his well, car. He is clearly a predatory man who has committed an offence to be treated as such. What we shouldn't do, though, is to treat the rest of the trans community in the same light, and that is, would be utterly wrong. We would not do that with any other community. So I've got some questions, right? Firstly, um, the, the, the summary SNP position is trans women or women. That's it. There's no question. They have all the rights of a woman. They are women. They're indistinguishable from women. And you're a bigot if you say otherwise. Um, but this one's a predatory man. And how do we tell the difference? Any any suggestions, anybody? Well, no, no. I, I mean, it's, it's just outrageous what's going on here. And of course, the victim gets pushed to one side. Nobody's interested in the victim. Um, but uh, these people do not do not want to talk about the reality. I, many people in the chat box are say in our chat box are saying, well, of course, he dressed as a woman because this uh, lured the girl to make him think he was safe, uh, when, of course, that was obviously not true. But, um, yeah, I mean, nobody wants to talk about the facts on the ground. All these politicians want to talk about is the politically correct woke agenda. That's, a, that's the only message she wants to get across. Oh, this, this is a good point, Brian, because it's, it's unreal. And it's the point you made there. It's, it's, it's the agenda, the woke agenda versus reality. They're not interested in reality. One other point I'd want to make is very briefly, this is what you call Martin Bailey, right? They've got a small defensible position that they retreat to 
when the ridiculous nature of the political position is, is revealed. So the, the ridiculous position is that a bloke can put on a dress and instantly becomes a woman if he chooses to, and there is no danger, there's no threat, everything's fine. And when that, when that is um, shown to be false, they retreat to the defensible position. And the defensible position is, well, you're not going to, you're not going to tar every member of a group as a predator, as an offender, because a because member of that group is offending. Right, that would be unfair. Yes, okay. So that's the that's the position they retreat to. Now, the question that they, that then has to be asked and answered is is down to the is in the area of is that is even that really true? Are we talking about um, the the people who are confused over sexual identity who are looking to behave as uh, as as a woman when they're a man? Are they actually are they actually as safe as everybody else to be around and children in this case to be around people of the opposite sex? Um, there are the assumption is that it's a community like any other community. Like you wouldn't blame someone who was North or who's Korean because a Korean committed a crime, right? Because that's looking at a community that's basically it's, it's it's a group of human beings, essentially indistinguishable in any in, in any significant um, manner from every other group of human beings, and the asking you to believe that that applies to the the so-called trans community as well, and I think that has to be brought into question as to whether that's really accurate. And we'll finish with Stonewall. Stonewall are making a comment here. We all remember being told gay people were predators and lesbians were a threat in single-sex spaces. That wasn't true of lesbian, gay, and bi people then, and it isn't true of trans people now. And I'm suggesting that that statement from Stonewall is, in fact, not factually correct and needs to be re-examined. Sorry, Mark, you wanted to cover a little bit about uh, the uh, Bilderberg Group. Yeah, last Monday, guys, when I reported this, um, everything was quite tentative, and I didn't have the topics list yet. And since then, of course, the Bilderberg meetings, as they're known, they published uh, more information, and Dan Dix of Press for Truth has done more reporting, and I've done a little bit of digging myself, of course, in the tradition of Jim Tucker that I was brought up on on this. Anyway, the 69th Bilderberg meeting in 69 years uh, took place the 18th of May through the 21st. So it just wrapped up in Lisbon, Portugal. There were about 130 people from 23 countries, mostly North America and Europe, a few Turks and all that. Um, I did a quick count. The USA had 29 people there from the US, Canada three, and the UK 11. Just a quick note. And some of these key topics, I circled in particular AI, banking system, and energy transition because you could get a little bit more specificity out of them. You have so many one-liners in Bilderberg meetings in recent years, and that hasn't changed. China, Europe, India, NATO, Russia, Ukraine. And uh, last year, this is um, this next slide is last year, and you see the, the, uh, the similarity, NATO, Russia, China, uh, Ukraine, disinformation. Uh, but I did mark continuity of government and the economy and disruption of the global financial system from last year. That's significant. Anyway, uh, moving on from there, uh, we have uh, the next item. 
this is rather interesting. Uh, you'll notice that Ukraine was on the Bilderberg agenda the last two years in a row. And Albert Borla, the chief of Pfizer, has been there uh, this year and I believe last year as well, but definitely this year. And this was from right after last year's Bilderberg meeting. Pfizer Incorporated, they recalled that on March, March 14th of 2022, we announced that effective immediately, Pfizer would donate the equivalent of all profits from our sales in Russia to causes that provide direct humanitarian support to the people of Ukraine. Today, June 22 of last year, I'm, I'm making good on that promise. Our first down payment of US 5 million will go to eight global and local NGOs to support humanitarian relief and response efforts. It includes food security, support services, education for children, and other pressing needs for the people of Ukraine. This is in addition to all other previously announced donations to Ukraine from Pfizer. So Pfizer has been quite a financial conduit for Ukraine, it turns out. And that is in relation to Bilderberg to a degree. The Pfizer Foundation, I didn't know there was a Pfizer Foundation offhand, and the more than 4,500 colleagues who, did, who donated, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, um, there's a spigot there going from Pfizer to Ukraine. And uh, the CEO of Pfizer is uh, in, in uh, just got done being in uh, Lisbon talking with Bilderberg uh, about Ukraine. So it definitely shows that uh, while the post-pandemic world was a topic last year, which would explain Big Pharma's presence at Bilderberg last year, there were no actual pandemic topics this year at Bilderberg, at least no announced topics. Therefore, it appears that Albert Borla uh, was at Bilderberg this year uh, largely, if not completely, uh, about um, Pfizer giving money to Ukraine, which is kind of interesting and perhaps not widely known. Now, moving on um, to another item here about um, Alex Karp of Palantir. And this item here, uh, we have to keep in mind that Bilderberg does not have topics each year that die on the vine that year or that sunset that year. Many of the topics, as we've seen, China, Russia, Ukraine, and several more are ongoing topics. So this, I want to make a quick comment on that. This proves that they're not just having casual conversations. If you were just having a getaway, a retreat, and just casually discussing things just to air things, you would have a lot more changes, I would argue, in the topics year to year to year. Instead, what we see are the same topics recurring indicating that there's a long-term plan, a long-term outlook and agenda on China, on Russia, and so on and so forth. Now, the, the slide a couple slides ago of Alex Karp of Palantir, I didn't want to lose that one. Um, he visited Ukraine just on the eve of the Bilderberg meeting last year. The Bilderberg meeting last year in the U.S. started on June 2nd, and on that very day, Alex Karp it shows him there, I circled him there in the photo, was visiting with Zelensky uh, as the first Western CEO to visit him amid the invasion. And this is uh, the Defense News website, so it's pretty reliable and neutral information. But uh, Palantir uh, gets into pretty high-tech um, gadgetry, and he and Alex Karp has uh, um, uh, uh, con con contracts with the Pentagon and, and pretty pretty big players like that. So you have an active Bilderberger who, by the way, is on the steering committee. Alex Garp is on the steering committee and is among the largest donors to the Bilderberg group. You have him last year 
which I think I've mentioned before, but it, it bears repeating. You have him last year visiting with Zelensky. So this is beginning to show why Ukraine is continually on the agenda. Uh, there's also the NATO connection, of course, with Jens Stoltenberg. So you have Pfizer giving money to Ukraine. You have Alex Karp visiting Ukraine last year on the eve of Bilderberg. Alex Karp is now a regular fixture at Bilderberg. And their, their inclusion of Ukraine on their agenda, again, begins to make more and more and more sense. It's not just one word. Now we're understanding what it's about. Anyway, um, there's some other interesting things here. We can go to the next uh, slide or two. We have a pictorial on the wall here at the Hotel Pastana, and Dan Dix and his partner of Press for Truth, they got this. Uh, it's kind of curious. They're, they're at this former palace called the Hotel Pastana, very, very posh, and they go in there right before they locked it down, and there's a United States and uh, other statesmen from around the world. There's this pictorial on the wall that, in a way, looks like it's been there a long time. Probably it hasn't. Probably it was put up to greet the Bilderbergers meeting there. But in a way, it looks kind of like it's been there a while. It reminds me of some of the press, uh, uh, the photo displays at the National Press Club that I've visited many times. And you'll see um, Mr. Barroso there in that photo. You'll see Al Gore, uh, Colin Powell, Leon Panetta. And it's, it's a little bit small, but according to Dan Dix, there's also a photo of Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. You can't see them all. The one to the left in this in this sh next shot, um, that photo evidently uh, includes Tony Blair, and I think Bill Clinton is in there somewhere. And the photo to the right in this shot is Madeleine Albright. So it's a curiosity, um, maybe nothing more than that, that there's this photo display. And then this is one of the rooms, that, perhaps the main room that the Bilderbergers met in uh, to the left at least for dining and some uh, casual things. Maybe it was the main room for the presentations. Um, based on what I've heard about Bilderberg, I think their presentation room where they actually discuss the topics would be a different room. And this one might be for breakfast and lunch. And to the right is another curiosity that Dan Dix showed. There's evidently what appears to be a Catholic cathedral within the grounds uh, of the Hotel Pastana or maybe even within the Hotel Pastana itself, apparently in the hotel. And uh, around the perimeter of the floor, there, there appears to be the Star of David, and the rest of it has Catholic iconography, uh, perhaps Jesuit iconography. I'm not totally sure. That's pure speculation. But that's something that Dan Dix uh, um, stumbled upon while looking at the hotel uh, right before they locked it down. And I don't know if you guys got any comments at this point, perhaps about Albert Borla's money going to Ukraine or anything I've talked about so far. Otherwise, I can move on. Uh, well, Mark, I don't want to steal your thunder because for me, the whole issue is transparency. Who are these people from whence or from where do they get their power and what are they talking about and why aren't we allowed to know about it? And I know that you're going to move on to that. Yeah, those fundamentals certainly are coming up. Uh, since I wasn't able to physically be there, but Dan Dix, with whom I've collaborated before since he was able to be there, there's some other uh, uh, passing interest items here. Here in this item, right as they were locking down, um, they routinely found cars that had been there maybe a little longer than normal. And evidently, without contacting the owner, as far as we know, they would just drag the cars away. So there they're getting ready to tow another car away. 
And then the smaller photo inset, they're, they're shown actually towing that very car away. So they're very cavalier about the average person's property around there, kind of indicative of the bigger picture there, Brian. But um, in the next slides, I've got a little bit more detail. Uh, this is an article that I've uh, nearly finished writing that uh, I'll, I'll likely be sending you guys way. And it'll probably be used in some of my other outlets, particularly my radio show. But of digital currency, energy transition, AI, et cetera, an assessment of this year's Bilderberg meetings, key topics and attendees. And I note here, while the Bilderberg meetings organizers act like it's magnanimous of them to release any information at all, no matter how sketchy to the beleaguered public, notable, notably several, several of this year's 13 Bilderberg topics are one word. Russia, China, Europe, India, NATO, which is all very big. Another one-word topic that popped up at last year's Bilderberg meeting and returned this year for the 69th meeting in 69 years is Ukraine. We've talked a little bit already about um, the context of that. And I'll add a little bit here. That topic, of course, also explains NATO's inclusion on the topics agenda. NATO is there, but it's also a topic. And NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg's return to Bilderberg once again. That's explained by Ukraine being on the list. Plus, NATO is a conduit in helping train and equip Ukraine against a Russian invasion that evidently was an answer to the EU-NATO-US hegemonic axis overthrowing Ukraine's pro-Russian leader in a 2014 coup and to the relentless expansion eastward of NATO to Russia's doorstep. Now, moving on from there, um, this is two Bilderberg members who took a walk on, I believe, next to the last day, or maybe it was the last day. It was either Friday or Saturday um, during this most recent Bilderberg meeting. And that's Zanny Mittenbettos to the left, the economist editor, editor-in-chief. And to the right is Matthias Dopfner, a CEO of, the CEO of Axel Springer, SE. And uh, we have a video clip, I believe, and uh, Mr. Doppner gives a pretty lame explanation of so-called amazing transparency of the Bilderberg Group. And I think you guys got that. If so, let's go ahead and play that. I told you last time, uh, on panels at Davos and all over the world. But in terms of the people uh, who are concerned with the secrecy, what, what would you say to the people who are concerned about the secrecy? Chatham, Chatham House rules say you can disclose what is said and discussed just Watch your back. Right. You know what? I think that is the beauty of it. You need both, as I said. You need, on the one hand, transparency, but you also need to have the possibility to discuss things in a circle where media are not attending. The transparency, I think, of the conference is pretty impressive. You have the program online and accessible to everybody, so you know exactly the topics that we are discussing. You know the participants. And I think that's uh, compared to other conferences, and I attend a lot of them, I think that is quite a role model of transparency. So, if yeah, I may, a I role couldn't... model of Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> I couldn't resist it. You know, we. Uh, we tell you what's what we're talking about. We, we tell you the subjects and you don't need to know any more. Don't worry your little heads about it. That's the, this is the yeah, nub of it. This is, this is essentially, even though he talks about Chatham House rules, that you can talk about what was said, but you mustn't identify the person. That's one layer of, of secrecy. But this is a completely secretive organization who the appointed these people.
Yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, evidently, they're emissaries, ultimately, for the World Banking Establishment or something like that. Um, we could go on and on about who's at the top of the pyramid, but the arrogance and the presumption that that's a good answer, a model of transparency. And what didn't get heard was uh, Dan Dick's Press for Truth partner right after that retorts, but even the World Economic Forum live streams everything they do. And you're saying that Bilderberg is a model of transparency. And then a little later on, I've got something about the uh, World, Go World Government Summit in Dubai, and everything is pretty much there. The discussions, a lot of video, uh, in-depth explanations of what the topics are. Uh, Bilderberg is the model of non-transparency with all the one-word topics, which are very vague unless you start prying at them the way I am and others do. And uh, so, you know, they only came out with their website and became even somewhat transparent under extreme duress, uh, generated in a large part by Jim Tucker in the old days, who encouraged the European media to be more honest and uh, forthright about Bilderberg. And that created a certain level of pressure. And then they began to be just that tiny bit of openness that Mr. Uh, Doppner thinks is the model of transparency. So this, this kind of double speak and his assumption that you can accept such a lame answer, uh, again, is another snapshot of their mindset. Um, there's also the uh, banking-related items on on the uh, there's the banking system. That's one of the topics. And I note here in this next slide that um, the banking system, which I also mentioned in this article, with that being a topic, uh, almost clearly, and I discussed this with some other Bilderberg uh, watchdogs. Uh, it's almost certain that that includes the discussion of central bank digital currencies in terms of the banking system being a topic this year for Bilderberg. Now, in this next slide here, I put on, uh, with relation to that, attendees this year relevant to the banking matters include German, a German guy, Paul Achtleitner, who's treasurer of the Bilderberg meetings and chairman of Deutsche Bank's Global Advisory Board, Bilderberg regular Jose Barroso. Uh, we saw his picture on the wall, Goldman Sachs International Advisors Chairman, and among others, Dambisi Moyo, the UK House of Lords Global Economist. So these are among those, and there are others that would take an interest in the banking system and what we think it's tied to central bank digital currencies. Um, also, uh, I mentioned here uh, more about Ukraine. Uh, we're just kind of winding through this, and I'll get to some of those ultimate questions, Brian. But Ukraine is of considerable interest. I write here, this is what I wrote, to Bilderberg returnee Alex Karp, CEO of Palantir Technologies and the major Bilderberg financial do donor, he sits on the Bilderberg Steering Committee, and I mentioned that he, on the eve of Bilderberg, visited Ukraine last year. And um, the exact quote from that Defense News article is that he quietly visited Ukraine, meeting with the country's president and other leaders in Kiev to discuss defense cooperation and the opening of an office for CARP's data analytics company in the war-torn country of Ukraine. So a Bilderberg Steering Committee member um, had planned to and probably is planning to open an office in Ukraine. That's a direct Bilderberg outpost, you might say, in Ukraine. I think that's not saying too much. And then um, we're winding down on Bilderberg here. The, the topic energy transition is another one that I've picked out as being highly significant. Uh, I put here in my article, it correlates with energy security and sustainability from last year's meeting. And with climate change replacing, at least for now, pandemics as the fear-based driver of more global consolidation, 
the one-worlders who dominate Bilderberg and the more open associated private governance clubs like the World Economic Forum and the Chicago Pritzker Forum on Global Cities tied in with the Urban 7 I reported last, last year, or excuse me, recently on UK Column, pardon me. Therefore, energy transition stands to fundamentally change society's machinery on par with an all-digital money system to the everlasting profit of the uber-rich class whatever marginal benefits might trickle down to the struggling uh, peasants. Bilderberg attendees, uh, I write here, related to energy transition matters include the French transport minister, Clement Bone, or Boone, Stanford Energy Science and Engineering Professor Sally Benson of the USA, Dutch Special Advisor to Shell PLC, Ben Van Buren, Danish Green Power CEO, Christian Jensen, CEO of British Petroleum PLC, Bernard Looney of the UK, and Group CEO of Ryanair, commercial airline, the commercial airliner, Michael O'Leary of Ireland. Uh, these are people that, um, it stands to reason, would be there for the energy transition topic. And uh, I did read where Ryanair had considered going all electric on some of its, some of its planes, but they're saying that's maybe 10, 15 years in the future yet. But uh, some of its competitors might do that. Uh, at best, so, Mark, um, I believe. Mark, look, uh, we're going to have to. We're just going to have to jump through uh, a couple of these. Um, if we just uh, run through very quickly the uh, the attendee list here, uh, and begins with Albert Burla, of course. Yeah, yeah. The, I I picked out as the sort of cherry on top here the the most significant names uh, that were there this year: Albert Burla, Pfizer. Uh, some of these I mentioned before, uh, um, Mark Carney, known in the banking community, uh, the president of the World Economic Forum, Borg Brende, my goodness, he's from Norway, um, Christopher Cavoli, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, so some pretty big names there, Tarun Shabra, Senior Director for Technology and National Security, National Security right, Council. Right, Mark. Um, look, yep. Mark, we we aren't going to be able to do them all, but but I mean the one that uh, the the ones that struck me were the the uh, the likes of Jeremy Fleming. Uh, there were other British intelligence uh, people there as well, uh, and uh, so I mean John Sawyer's is the other one that sort of uh, uh, jumped out at me, of course. Uh, and Jens Stoltenberg, as you mentioned, but also uh, Tom Tugendhat, who's the Minister of State for Security in the UK. Yeah. Right. Uh, so you know, what? So this is this is another opportunity if anybody is a constituent of Tom Tugendhat, because this comes back to this old question of: yeah. uh, is anybody who's in public service entitled to a private public life? Uh, and of course, he is uh, a sitting MP, uh, and we don't know uh, what he. What he's talking about in this meeting. Well, precisely. Yeah. So I think we are entitled to know why he's a sitting MP. Um, so, Mark, we you know finally have to come back to this this issue of you know if somebody is in public service, what right they have to uh, take part in these private meetings. Yeah, and this ties into Brian's concerns, and uh, this is a good conclusion part for this segment. Exactly right. I'm working on another article. Uh, if you're all private people, if you're all Shell and you know BP and uh, private companies and you want to have a meeting, that's probably going to, going to pass the smell test. But as soon as you put sitting, tax-paid public officials into the mix, the entire situation changes because they can't just shed their public identity at will and say, well, I'm going to go silent now and discuss things 
in such a way that no one will ever know about due to Chatham House rule. And the list that Mr. Doppner uh, defended and the, the so-called model of transparency that he defended in that video we saw earlier just doesn't hold water. So the, the, the inclusion of public officials, in my opinion, is outright unlawful. Uh, former ones, maybe, maybe not. Even former public officials might have intelligence that could go to the wrong people. Um, certain state secrets that maybe shouldn't be revealed. So, yeah, I think that if uh, viewers of UK Column want to really press this matter, they need to contact those public officials that are there in their respective countries and really, really read them the riot act. Yeah, so yeah. Th this pretty much concludes the um, most key reporting on Bilderberg. But there'll be a few items in the uh, weeks ahead as other as other things are revealed or analyzed. Brilliant. Thank thank you, Mark. Uh, Okay, look, we're absolutely out of time. Uh, David, we wanted to finish off, though, with a gift for Mark, perhaps. Well, yes, uh, my, my uh, football club um, I got promoted after 10 years of trying from the third tier to the second tier in Scottish football to the championship. Um, and I thought Mark might be quite interested in one of the banners that was flown by the supporters, um, uh, namely this one. Uh, Donald Trump saying that we should make Avery great again. And uh, Mark might be uh, interested that I can actually get him the shirt. Um, I can get him the Avery version of the MAGA shirt. Uh, here it's here. Um, the diamond being the uh, nickname for the football team. So, Mark, would you like one? Yes, that'd be a medium, preferably black. <laughs> I'll take your order and I'll get it filled. Don't you worry. Brilliant. Okay. Well, look, we're absolutely out of time, so we've got to leave it there. Well, UK Column Extra in just a few minutes. Please join us. And, of course, we're going to be joined by Dr. Deep T. Bisht. So if you've got uh, more questions on matters to do with fallout or possible fallout, please join us. Okay. Thanks for joining us. See you uh, later.